right, good morning, everybody. We're starting a new series today. Uh, really just called something different to move us into Easter, but we're still in the book of Mark. So this is our second series in the book of Mark. We're not going to leave you hanging without going through the last three chapters. Um, but when I was planning this out before, I was like, okay, yeah, so... Uh, chapter 14 is like leading up to the crucifixion, 15 is the crucifixion, and then uh, 16 is the resurrection. I was like, oh, perfect breakdown for a three-part series leading into April, right? Well, then I start prepping for this one, and I gave myself the whole chapter of Mark 14, which is like 72 verses. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So there is a lot that happened immediately leading up to the crucifixion. And I was really praying, like, God, if this is one message, what are the themes that you want to pull out to speak to us leading into Easter right now? And what I've named this sermon today is the opportune time. The opportune time. And if you got a bulletin, you have message notes with fill in the blank in there. You can follow along with us. But the opportune time is what I named it. Because we have seen so many times, it comes up specifically in this chapter, but it has come up multiple times before it comes up in this chapter. So I'm going to walk you through a couple of verses about this idea. In Mark, um, if I can find the right Mark verse here. Okay, Mark 14, 11. It says, they were delighted to hear this and agreed to pay him for it. This is when Judas is meeting with the officials to turn in Jesus. So immediately, Judas began to look for the right opportunity to betray him. In other versions, it is, he began looking for the opportune time to betray him. We saw this in another place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we talked about it when we were at the beginning of Mark, when he was going for his 40 days in the wilderness and Satan tempted him multiple times, and Jesus overcame the temptation. And when he overcame the final temptation, it says Satan left and waited for an opportune time. Then all throughout the book of Mark, we have the religious leaders trying to attack Jesus. I think in one point in the Gospels, he actually disappears from a crowd that was about to walk him off a cliff. And it said it was not yet his time, but they were looking for the opportune time. What I want you to notice is... One, when it is not yet his time, it will not happen no matter whether the enemy is looking for the opportune time or not. And then number two is that what the enemy wants to use as the opportune time, what might seem like, oh my goodness, my life is in shambles. This is the opportune time for the enemy. It is happening. We can turn around in the face of that, in the midst of that, and use it as an opportune time for our growth and our relationship with God to be strengthened. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So in Genesis 50-20, Joseph has been sold into slavery, left to die, betrayed, lied about, falsely accused, falsely imprisoned, overlooked, forgot about, stolen credit from. All of these things have happened that ended up leading him to the second highest position in Egypt, which was essentially the world's superpower at the time. So you wouldn't think any of those things would lead to being right-hand man of the world, essentially, but they did. And that's a whole other message and a whole other story for another time. But it comes down to this point where he's facing his brothers who had betrayed him initially, who got this whole thing started. And he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. 
he brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So he went through back-to-back worst scenarios of all time. You would think God had left him. But when others thought God had left him, he had not left God. And he stayed in the midst of the trials. He stayed and trusted in God's ultimate sovereignty and the fact that God is ultimately the one in charge. So you intended to harm me. You thought that was the opportune time to get rid of me and to cut off my life's purpose. But God intended it all for good. It's what I love about that song we just say, God, I believe you're working all things for good. Even when it's hard to believe, if we say that, if we speak that until we fake it till you make it a little bit. God, I believe you are working all things for good. And that's what Joseph did. Ephesians 5, 16 says, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. There are lots of opportune times for the enemy of our souls. And they encourage us. This is a church after Jesus Paul is writing to. And he says, make the most of every opportunity. So when we see an opportune time for evil or when the enemy sees an opportune time for evil, as we're going to walk through Mark 14 where it leads up to his crucifixion, where it seems like the enemy won, we're going to see all the ways Jesus turned it around in the midst of that opportune time for the enemy and made it an opportune time for himself. Because it's his time when it's his time and no one can say anything different. Amen? So let's go through this today. Number one today is choosing worship over security leads to God's presence. Choosing worship over security leads to God's presence. At the beginning of Mark, starting in verse 3, Mark 14, 3. Now Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon, a man Jesus had healed of leprosy. And as he was reclining at the table, a woman came into the house with an alabaster flask filled with the highest quality of fragrant and expensive oil. She came to Jesus and with a gesture of extreme devotion, which in other words we could say of extreme worship, she broke the flask and poured out the precious oil over his head. But some were highly indignant when they saw this. And they complained to one another, saying, what a total waste. Jesus said to them, leave her alone. Why are you so critical of this woman? She has honored me with this beautiful act of kindness. When she poured the fragrant oil over me, she was preparing my body in advance for my burial. She has done all that she could to honor me. You will always have the poor, whom you can help whenever you want, but you will not always have me. Choosing worship over security leads to God's presence. See, what was in that alabaster jar was probably what was going to be used for her wedding dowry. And that was, marriage was security for a woman at the time. They had no way of making a living without a husband. They had no way of legitimacy or credibility without a husband. They were essentially property, and property without an owner is trash. And so when she poured out what would buy her marriage and security and safety and certainty and a future, when she broke it and poured it out, she gave up security for worship. So when we choose worship over security, it leads us to God's presence. When we think about those who complained about her offering, who complained about her worship, There's a commentary on this passage that says, as 
The Lord, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he loves a cheerful giver, not a carefully calculating one. She didn't sit there and say, well, how much of this oil can I afford to give in worship and still keep my security? And that's what these people who were criticizing her, what a waste. So how could she? What, that could have been given to the poor. That could have been used for some other means. And sure, yeah, it could have. But at that moment, she had the Son of God in her presence, and nothing else mattered. Nothing else mattered. So she chose worship over security. She risked it all. She was not carefully calculating what she could afford to give. She just gave it all. Another commentator of this passage said something that was beautiful to me. Jesus had said, you will always have the poor who you can help whenever you want, but you will not always have me. The commentator says this was a gentle hint of his approaching departure. All through this chapter, we see him kind of telling them what's about to happen. But it's a gentle hint of his approaching departure by the one who knew the worth of his own presence. By the one who, do we know the worth of his own presence? See, Mary with the alabaster jar knew the worth of his own presence. He knew the worth of his own presence because he knew he wasn't going to be with them in physical form forever. We need to choose security or choose worship over security so that we can enter God's presence. Maybe if you're struggling with feeling the presence of God, maybe this is what you need to check. Am I holding back in my worship? Am I holding back in my devotion? Am I saying, no, I'm not going to risk that? No, I'm too worried. I'm going to look weird. I'm going to sound funny. Um, this is going to be too extreme and fanatical for other people. So I'm going to carefully calculate what I hold back and what I restrain. Maybe that's why you're not experiencing his presence. Number two today is choosing blessing in the midst of hunger leads to fulfillment. Choosing blessing in the midst of hunger leads to fulfillment. Mark 14, 22. We're seeing Jesus at the Passover meal with his disciples, what we now know as the Last Supper. It was the last meal he had with them. It says this, as they were dining, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He said to them, receive this, it is my body. Receive this, it is my body. We're going to take communion later today because we're talking specifically about the first communion in this chapter. And the reason why the point is in the midst of hunger it leads to fulfillment is because all throughout the scriptures we see the analogy of bread as a hunger and thirst for God. Or the analogy of bread as trusting God to provide for our daily needs. When we're talking about the Passover, this was to celebrate the Israelites being delivered out of slavery, but then they were in the wilderness for 40 years, and what they had to do was trust God for their daily bread. The bread, manna, would come in the morning, they would collect it, and they had to use it all up or throw it out before the next day because the next day it would mold. Except miraculously, the day before the Sabbath, they would get a double portion and it wouldn't mold for two days. So that they didn't have to go gather more. They were to trust God for their daily bread. And if they hoarded it, if they tried to be carefully calculating and usurp God's control and his authority, then it would go bad the next day. And there would be a punishment for them. 
So we see this all throughout, to trust God for our daily needs, to trust him to bring us spiritual fulfillment. So when we choose blessing, he took the bread and blessed it. When we choose blessing others, blessing the Lord, when we choose extending and offering blessing, even in the midst of hunger, it leads to spiritual fulfillment. The reason you could say, well, he was just praying over the food, that's what the blessing was. But it was something very different when it came to when he talks about the cup, to when he moves from the bread to the cup. So there's some significance in him praying a blessing at the bread versus what comes later. So choose blessing in the midst of hunger leads to fulfillment. Maybe we're struggling with feeling like we are spiritually fed or spiritually nourished or spiritually growing. And my challenge would be, what are you blessing? What are you blessing? What are the words of your mouth saying? Because it says that blessing and curses are in the tongue. Blessing and curses are what we say. What are you blessing versus what are you cursing? What does your self-talk look like? Are you cursing yourself or blessing yourself? Are you cursing your children or blessing your children? Are you cursing your coworkers, your spouse? your friend, your neighbor, your church members, or are you cursing them with the words that you speak? When we choose blessing, even in the midst of our own hunger, even in the midst of our own lack, and we choose to bless, that's when we get fulfillment. Number three today is choosing praise in the midst of brokenness leads to joy. Choosing praise in the midst of brokenness leads to joy. And one of the things I love about kind of these points that came out as I was praying and studying this passage is that there are so many different types of what we call praise and worship, like when we sing. And you'll notice it even when, if you think about really the words and the themes to different worship songs, they're different. There's worship of devotion, of just giving it all to God. There's praise, which is thankfulness, adoration, gratitude, there's blessing, which is I'm blessing you, I'm giving to you. There are so many, there's prayer, there's prayerfulness songs. There are songs that fit all these different themes, right? So not every song fits what we do on a Sunday morning. We try to do songs of invitation, of celebration, of declaring God's goodness and responding to him in an encounter with him. What we do on Sundays, we don't always have like the really prayerful songs on Sundays. We might have those on a prayer night, you know? So there's so many different ways to seek God and to speak to God. So number three is choosing praise in the midst of brokenness. In Mark 14, 23, this is the next verse. Then taking the cup of wine and giving thanks to the Father, he declared the new covenant with them. And as each one drank from the cup, he said to them, this is my blood which seals the new covenant poured out for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day comes when we drink it together in the kingdom feast of my father. Then they sang a psalm and afterwards left for the Mount of Olives. So with the bread, he blessed it. With the wine, he gave praise. With the wine, subtle difference, but enough of a difference to notice it. Now the cup the imagery used for the cup all throughout the scriptures and that time was the cup of joy or the cup of suffering. And what Jesus knew was he was about ready to go into Gethsemane and pray and be tempted to give up the cross and not go there. And he was asking that the cup of suffering would be removed from him. So keep that in mind. There's the cup of joy. There's the cup of suffering. And then he's also talking about a new covenant 
what is something we hear the word covenant with a lot? Besides, besides in the Bible, we think of like, hopefully, a marriage as a covenant. Not just a contract that we can easily shred, but a covenant. In the Old Testament, when God made the first covenant with his people, it was him and Abraham. And the custom at the time was to take an animal, because it was serious. This is going to sound very gruesome and inhumane. But this was very serious, okay? They would take an animal, split it from head to toe down the middle, spread the two body parts on either side, and there would be a pool of blood. And they would walk through the blood, and the idea of the covenant, or the contract, or whatever, this is what ups it from just being a contract, right? Is that if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. It was serious. <laughs> if I don't hold up my end, and so God wanted to do this with Abraham. He gives him the promise of blessing him and his people for generations to come. This was before Egypt. This was before Joseph. This is before the Israelites were slaves and set free. It was before all of that. And Abraham walked through it, and then God held a lamp. He, you couldn't see him. There was a lamp that floated through. And that was God walking through to say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what happen to those animals. He does not ask us. He does not ask us to give what he is not already willing to give or has given. He will not ask anything of us that he has not already given. And he has given the ultimate. So there's so much foreshadowing just in this. This is what communion is. It's blessing the bread, his body broken for us. It's praising for the cup of suffering that's going to be replaced with a cup of joy. It's foreshadowing that we no longer have to separate lambs to fulfill the covenant, but that now Jesus had his body broken and his blood shed. So he was the ultimate covenant. He says, this is the new covenant. There's no more going to have to be working to get rid of your sins. There is now a new covenant. Of my blood, a new covenant of the sacrifice that I am about ready to do. A new covenant that says in the midst of this broken covenant, because his people broke the covenant again and again and again and again. And again and again and again and again. And so finally, even though God tried and over and over again, he gave them grace and he didn't do this to them like they had said in the covenant that they would agree to. He finally walked away from that old covenant and he stepped into a new one when he sent Jesus. So choosing praise in the midst of the cup of suffering, in the midst of brokenness, leads to joy. That he'll replace that cup of suffering, that brokenness, the broken covenant, the sins, the failures, the mistakes. He'll replace it with the cup of joy. Number four today is praying in the midst of suffering leads to freedom. So what happened there in communion uh, the, at the Last Supper, he was foreshadowing so many things that were about to come. Praying in the midst of suffering, that cup, leads to freedom. Because what happened next in Mark 14, 32, then Jesus led his disciples to an orchard called the oil press, also known as the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them, sit here while I pray a while. He took Peter, Jacob, and John with him. Jacob is another name for James. An intense feeling of great horror plunged his soul into deep sorrow. I don't know if there's 
another great definition for suffering than that. An intense feeling of great horror plunged his soul into deep sorrow, and he said to them, my heart is overwhelmed with anguish and crushed with grief. He was at the garden called the oil press, and he was crushed with grief. It feels as though I'm dying. Stay here and keep watch with me. And to further explain the amount of suffering he had, he had a condition that they didn't know at the time, but medical doctors now have identified, I don't know the name of this, but you can look it up, a, a, a disease or an episode or a condition where you are so full of anxiety that you sweat drops of blood. And Jesus was sweating drops of blood. His blood was being shed before he was ever tortured and crucified. He was being tortured in his spirit, knowing what was about to come. He walked a short distance away and being overcome with grief, he threw himself face down on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, he would not have to experience this hour of suffering. He prayed, Abba, which means Daddy, my Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup of suffering. So many times we see him pray to God the Father and he calls him Father. And in this moment, he is so crushed, he goes to the intimate term for dad. Abba, Daddy, my Father, all things are possible for you. Please remove this cup of suffering. Yet what I want is not important, for I only desire to fulfill your plan for me. Then he came back to his three disciples and found them all sound asleep. He awakened Peter and said to him, Simon, are you sleeping? Do you lack the strength to stay awake with me for even just an hour? Keep alert and pray that you'll be spared from this time of testing, for your spirit is eager enough, but your humanity is feeble. He wanted Simon specifically. There were three with him, right? There were 12, and then he took the three with him to pray. And then Simon, he calls out, or Peter, he calls out, but he calls him Simon, actually. So Simon was his pre-grace name. It was his given name. Then God gave him a new name when he came to be a follower of him. He renamed how many of us have a new identity in Christ. The old is gone. The new is here. He called him by his old name because he knew something Peter did not yet know. That Peter later that night was going to deny him three times. He knew that, and he says, Simon, the old self, pray with me, stay awake, be alert, so you might be set free from this time of testing. Even in the most excruciating anguish of his life that probably some of us have tasted but not have to that extreme, in the midst of that, he was still looking out for one of his best friends. He was still looking out for one of his followers saying, he, I know it's going to happen, but please, Simon, just please. Pray with me. When we pray in the midst of suffering, it leads us to freedom. It leads us to freedom. He will set us free because even though what was going on here was Jesus was actually being tempted to not go through with what needed to happen for this new covenant to come. He was tempted to not go through with it. Satan wasn't excited that Jesus was crucified because he knew that's when an end was going to be put to his reign. He knew that would mean Jesus had power over death and the grave. And he didn't want that. He wanted that to still be his territory. So Jesus was being tempted to not go through with it. That was the suffering he was feeling. And he could have gave him, but he said, but what I want is not important. Praying 
praying in surrender, praying for God's will to be done, the way Jesus prayed it so many times, leads us to freedom even in the midst of our suffering. Because he was set free from that. He moved on through the suffering to be able to be crucified, which doesn't sound great, but it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew his purpose. He knew his identity. He knew why he was on this earth. And he was set free from the suffering to go into the freedom of his purpose. Because he went to God in prayer. A biblical commentator says on this, that there's a quotation from the Psalms that could fit here. The psalm not only expresses the soul's deep longing for God, but it also contains in the last clause of each of the two verses an affirmation of faith and a promise of God's deliverance. Jesus was hinting at these psalms. He was praying scripture again. How did he always get through temptation? How did he always get through the attacks of the enemy? By speaking scripture, by praying scripture, we've got to know the word, whether it's listening to it, playing it, reading it, whatever. If it's just a verse a day and you chew on it all day long, or if you read chapters and chapters at a time, we have to have the word of God. It's what sets us free. So at the very moment when Jesus seems most perplexed, he is most conscious by faith of God's ultimate vindication. He knew that vindication was in God, in his father, that it was coming, and that in his soul's deepest anguish. What was on the other side was freedom, and not just freedom for him, but freedom for everyone who would choose to accept him. So, praying in the midst of suffering leads to freedom. Number five today, choosing submission over control leads to life. We've already seen that a little bit in the last passage, but it comes to life even more um, to me in verse 42. And this is kind of an odd verse to throw in here. It doesn't seem super spiritual or anything. But in Mark 14, 42, Jesus said, this is right when he's done praying. He wakes up all the disciples. None of them stayed awake with him to pray. He wakes up all the disciples and says, get up. Let's go. Don't you see? My betrayer draws near. And he's not saying, let's go and run away. He's saying, let's go meet them. He wasn't submitting to the enemy. He was submitting to God's plan. He knew God's plan. He knew his purpose. And what looked like an enemy, what came in physical form as his betrayer, was the next step in God's plan. How many of you have been accused or betrayed or hurt or broken? And later down the line, you realize if you didn't go through that, you never would have gotten here. If you didn't go through that breaking, you never would have made it to where you are on this side. Because when we can choose submission in the midst of that moment, in the midst of that betrayal, and submit to God's plan, instead of trying to control it, instead of trying to fix it and figure it out and make it work the way we think it should work, when we can submit to God in that and God's plan, it will lead us to life. There was a time shortly after we adopted Isaiah where we had to lose two of our foster daughters. And it was abrupt. It was sudden. I had to pack up all that, their stuff that day, and I couldn't, they couldn't come home. I had to meet them at school. Thankfully, they let us say bye to them in the parking lot. 
Then I wasn't allowed to talk to them for a year. The new family or their parents or whatever didn't want us to talk to them, not send pictures, not send gifts, nothing. And I was pretty good at, like, attaching to my foster kids while still knowing that the goal was for them to go back to their parents and that they wouldn't always be with us. But with this, these particular kids, they were twin girls. We had had one of them for a year and a half. With these particular girls, we thought, it wasn't official, but we thought it was pretty much for sure going to adoption. And so we had already decided that we were going to adopt these girls. And so when they took them away, when they gave me the, the news, I literally, the caseworker was there. I started wailing like embarrassingly wailing, screaming, my babies, they're my babies, and then got in the fetal position on the floor, and the caseworker had to let herself out because I couldn't. That's the taste of anguish that I've had. That was the worst moment for me in my life. But later that day, my parents had come, and I had never heard Kyle cry the way he cried when he found out and came home. And my parents drove up two hours to come be with us. And later that night, I, I had some sort of I, excruciating anguish inside. But I had a piece that doesn't make sense. And I remember looking at them, and I said, literally, this may sound morbid, because I didn't know another way to say it. That wasn't the greatest word. But, but I feel like God's going to bring us something exciting after this. In the midst of your deepest anguish, if you can submit to God's plan in it, instead of try to fix it and piece it back together in your own power, and trust that he has a plan, he brings you something even better on the other side that you couldn't have imagined. Not too long after that, we accidentally got Moxie. Moxie is the joy of our life. Um that we never would have planned or thought, and she's just always smiley, and we actually had someone tell us once that every time she smiles on us, it's God smiling on us because he knows what you've gone through. There's a verse that I've chosen for this week with our freedom group. I have us choose verses sometimes to speak over our lives, and one says, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. And I've repped, I have rep, reaped, repped, reaped, harvested, so much joy there were lots of tears and you've been there or maybe you're there right now but God's promise is that when there are lots of tears you will reap in joy and the joy is amazing and it's coming so when you can submit over controlling it leads to life and a life that's unexplainable number six is that knowing your identity in the face of accusation leads to restoration. Knowing your identity in the face of accusation leads to restoration. There have been times we face this too, people saying, you've done this, you've done that, <laughs> we haven't done, and we had no way to defend ourselves. <laughs> and even if we did have a way to defend yourself, it makes more sense to just not. Because <laughs> who's going to believe you, right? Knowing your identity in the face of accusation leads to restoration. So Mark 14, 60, Jesus is standing on trial. And he's on trial. He goes in front of Herod, who's the Jewish king at the time. He goes in front of the religious Jewish leaders at the time. And he goes in front of Pilate. So he has like a million trials going on all in this one night. Everyone trying to accuse him. And basically what's going on is 
Some witnesses would say that. Some witnesses would say this. It's like, oh, he healed someone on a Saturday. And they're like, oh, yes, crucify him for that. Like, what? They didn't have anything to go off of. Let's be real. They did not have anything to go off of. And so they'd have witnesses come say this. Then other witnesses say this. And Pilate, who's not a Jew or into their religious laws, was like, why in the world do you want to kill this guy anyway? He seems fine. Like, he's not raising up an army to overturn anyone. He's not actually breaking any of your laws. Pilate is just confused, man. He wants out of this. So in verse 60... It says, finally, the chief priest stood up in the middle of them and said to Jesus, have you nothing to say about these allegations? Because all the while, Jesus is quiet. They're like, what do you say to that? What do you say to that? They said that you would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Like, they really believed that. They really believed Jesus was going to single-handedly build a temple in three days from ruins. Like, you know what I'm saying? It was just ridiculous. And Jesus was just silent. He knew these were pointless accusations, and so they're pointless to argue. There was no grounds to them. So even though what they were saying had no valid argument, he didn't sit there and say that. He stood there and was silent. And so finally, this chief priest gets up and says, have you nothing to say about these allegations? Is what they're saying about you true? They're trying to get him to do something here. But Jesus remained silent before them and did not answer. So the chief priest said to him, are you the anointed Messiah, the son of the blessed God? So he's now asking who he is, not what he's done or not done. And they're asking this because, you know, he said it and people are saying it about him. And this is when Jesus looks up. And he says, I am which is, in all accepted Jewish tradition, the name for the God. I am. And more than that, you're about to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the Almighty and coming in the heavenly clouds. Jesus is like, oh, yes, I will claim that one. <laughs> that is who I am. And more than that, this is what you're about to see. He knew it was going to fall on deaf ears. He knew that was what was going to clinch it to give them what they needed because they even if they would have been convinced in absolutely every way possible who Jesus was. We've seen it in messages before in this series, in chapters before in Mark. Even if they would have been convinced and every box was checked to say that's who he was, they had already themselves closed themselves off to accepting him as the Messiah. So he knew saying that wasn't going to do anything. But the only time he bucked up in the face of these accusations was when it was his identity. And he knew his identity. Knowing your identity in the face of accusation leads to restoration. Leads to restoration. He stepped into his identity. And if there was still any lingering trying to get out of the suffering from the garden, it was gone in this moment. He stepped into his identity. He walked into his purpose. And restoration came. Number seven. Allowing remorse after stumbling leads to redemption. Allowing remorse after stumbling leads to redemption. Mark 14, 72. We're now seeing uh, Peter. When the roosters crowed three times and he suddenly realizes that he's just denied Jesus three times just like he said he would. 
At that same moment, Peter spoke those words. The sound of a rooster crowing pierced the night for the second time. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him earlier. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. With his heart shattered, Peter broke down and sobbed with bitter tears. Now this isn't in this chapter, but what, what do we know? Peter denied Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus. What's the difference in their story? Judas ran off to hopelessness. He ended up hanging himself when he realized what he was done, what he had done. Peter had a shattered heart and wept. And what we'll hear later in this series, that when Jesus was resurrected, those who found him, he said, go find Peter. He named him by name to let him know, I know what you did, and I know the condition of your heart over it. I know you were remorseful. You were torn up about it, and I still want you to come see me. You're the first name I'm going to say (laughs) when I raise from the dead. Come see me. So the difference between Judas and Peter is remorse, a broken heart repentance. And I don't want us to get this confused with regret. I used to think it was the most ridiculous thing in the world to say I have no regrets. I just thought it was ridiculous. You've probably seen the picture of a guy who got a tattoo that said no regrets because they spelled it wrong. Like he probably regrets that. I used to think it was ridiculous. Like how can you have no regrets? We all do things that we mess up that we wish didn't happen that we wish we could go back and do differently, right? How do you live with no regrets? Then there's this verse, if I can find it. I'm going to look it up in the Bible app, guys. Then there's this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there with me because this is a good enough one to highlight if you have your Bible with you. All right, 2 Corinthians. Sword drill. Does anyone know what a sword drill is? It's when you had to hurry up in Sunday school as a kid. 2 Corinthians 7. And there's a section in my Bible, it's titled, Godly Remorse Over Sin. Can't get it in a different translation here. All right, here we go. Uh, I don't know if I can find it. Okay, verse 8. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul was harsh. He was like, these are all the things you're doing wrong. These are all the sinful people. This is what they're doing. And they would read these letters before the whole church. So he was like, this is the sin. This is what they're doing. Read it to the whole church. All of you need to correct this. All of you need to do this. And you need to hurry up and change it. So then he writes the second letter. So this is after they've had time to think about the letter and decide if they were going to do anything about it or not. And in verse 8, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. So if we're thinking about Peter, his sorrow led to repentance. We know repentance is when you're going down this path, the path of destruction and sin and mistakes and bad habits. Repentance is turning around and walking the other way. Okay? It's what we all wish really happened on January 1st with our New Year's resolutions. That's what repentance is, okay? So he said, it led you to repentance, for you became sorrowful as God intended. 
so you were not harmed in any way by us. So sorrow does not always mean bad. It's not a pleasant feeling, but it can be good in purpose. Godly sorrow, this is key. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no room for regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, yeah, it doesn't make sense to have no regrets. Unless, what he's saying here, unless the sorrow over what you've done is a godly remorse that has turned you around into new life and made you grow and made you strengthen and made you better and healthier and more whole and all of these wonderful things that he has for us. Then godly sorrow leaves no room for regret. So remorse is not the same as regret. If we have regret, it's worldly sorrow. If we have regret, we need to take it and turn it into godly sorrow that will turn, change our lives, that will teach us something different. So, if I can get back on the message note here. I really pulled a risky situation by going into a different app in the middle of this. So, let's see how we can do this. Open with Touch ID, but it's not my fingerprint, so we got to get the passcode on. I'll try my new fingerprint, Kyle. I'm struggling. <laughs> Tech is great, right? It's so secure, I can't even get into it. It's not letting me in. Sorry. Hello. Technical difficulties. Google Drive. The fingerprint works. Okay. Round of applause for Kyle's fingerprint. Thank you. Okay, thank you. So seven, allowing remorse after stumbling leads to redemption. A Bible commentator said this, to be offended in Christ or to stumble at him in biblical language means to be utterly staggered by his ways. To lack the spiritual key that alone opens our understanding, something that God's spirit alone can bring. He wants to give us that key. He wants to offer redemption. He wants to see us turn from this path to this path. He wants any regret that we have to turn into godly sorrow that leaves no room for regret. Mark 14, 14 says this. Say to the owner of whatever house he enters, the teacher wants to speak to you. Do you have my room ready when I can eat the Passover with my disciples? So this is back towards the beginning of the chapter when he was looking for a place to have the Last Supper. He said, whatever house he enters, I just need a room. Do you have a room? Something insignificant, right? He had the alabaster box, something extravagant given. He had Whatever person has a room, has a room. He had the seemingly insignificant by the unknown person, right? God will use our insignificant. God will use our significant. God will use our unknowns. He wants to use us 
We just have to give it to him to be used. Mark 14, 19. When Jesus at the Last Supper had said, one of you sitting here will betray me. It says about the disciples feeling deeply troubled by these words. One after another asked him, is it I? One after another asked him, is it I? We need to search our hearts. They weren't defensive about that. They turned inward, said, is it me? Could it be me? Could it possibly? <laughs> like, and these guys were not even thinking about it and because we know it was Judas, right? But they were thinking, is it me? Do I have anything in me that could betray Christ? Do I have anything in me that would go against him? So get your communion cups ready. You should have one on your seat or a seat next to you. There's two tabs, a little clear one to pull off the top for the bread and then the full one for the drink. But think about what he said. Jesus raised the bread and he blessed it. He blessed it and said, this is my body broken for you. In the midst of our hunger, whatever spiritual hunger you have, whatever lacking you have, he wants to bring fulfillment to you today. So Jesus, we accept your life. We accept your fulfillment today. That whatever we're lacking, that we would turn to you in the midst of that hunger, that we would find fulfillment in your presence. So go ahead and take the body, remembering what he did for us. And then you can open the cup, and when he took the wine, he praised God. Because he knew even though right now it was a cup of suffering, it was going to be replaced with a cup of joy. And in the midst of his brokenness, he praised God. In the midst of the brokenness today, whatever that is you may be feeling, or maybe you're not in the midst of brokenness, but you remember a time, and you can praise him for bringing you out the other side. Whether you're praising him for what he's already brought you out of or what he's going to bring you out of. Take the cup today. Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for what you did for us. We thank you so much for the suffering that you went through to get to the joy on the other side. And we give ourselves to you today. If everyone could keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you want to start a relationship with Jesus, maybe you haven't in a long time or this might be your first time, where you've walked out of a relationship or you've never been in a relationship with him, actively trying to turn to him in the midst. You're not going to be perfect. But if you want to start that relationship with him today, on the count of three, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just so that we can pray with you. And that's that first step for you today to make that decision. On the count of three, if you want to give your life to Jesus, one, two, three. Go ahead and put up your hand if that's you. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all pray together in affirmation of this decision and what we do every time we have the Lord's Supper, every time we have communion, we recommit our lives to Jesus. If you could repeat after me, dear Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you did for me. Thank you that you still pursue me. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Make me new today. That I would have godly sorrow that leads to repentance.